0: What? All right. Welcome to Con-Con Consciousness Conversations. I'm Dr. And I'm Ben. And, and mm-hmm. oh, go ahead. And I'm Jeff. Yeah, we have a very special guest, Jeff Harris, today, who's joining us. Uh, Jeff works at OpenAI. We've been friends for a really long time. Ben works on AI at NVIDIA, so we're going to be talking a lot about the intersection between consciousness in AI today. Uh, we've been teasing this for weeks on the podcast. So <laughs> if you've been following along, um, uh, so let's start with, I'd like to just give a minute to Jeff to talk about kind of your, your background, um, both like how you got into AI, but also what your interests are in consciousness. I know we've had a lot of these kinds of conversations in the past.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Um, I think of my interest in consciousness is coming from a few different places. The first was early psychedelic experiences and just waking up to how vast the landscape of consciousness was and how the default version of it was you know, good in some ways, but also like pretty lacking in others. So that's been kind of an <laughs> ongoing exploration. With the for,
0: default version of consciousness.
1: Yeah. The one before you like attune it more or modify it Got either it. With, yeah. with substances or with your own brain. Um, just yeah maybe growing up it was like there is one consciousness and then in my early 20s realizing that there's an infinitude of consciousnesses and some of them are great and some of them are scary and uh just exploring that uh um related to that i've had a meditation practice for the last like six or so years and that's been really taking the stuff from psychedelics and just trying to figure out how to like modulate your own brain and like how you can tweak the conscious experience by just using your attention really carefully, um, frustratingly. Um, and then I think the third thing is I've been really interested in AI since uh, I was a kid. I remember, um, reading Ray Kurzweil's The Singularity Is Near when I was 13 and just being like, yeah, I'm going to transcend, I'm not going (laughs) to die. Um, It's all happening in my lifetime. And maybe I I lost uh, some enthusiasm for that in the early 20s, but I've actually been regaining it lately. Like I think in the last few years, we've just seen AI kind of accelerating and I'm I'm sort of feeling very promising about it. And I think that maybe has a chance of helping us understand consciousness in a much more empirical way than what we are. We've been doing with neuroscience and stuff like that. So I do view AI as like one of the big bets that humanity is making in terms of like how we will understand this great mystery.
2: Dr. Did did you read the singularities Nair? Yeah. I remember, I think it was in my early twenties, uh, buying it and then seeing how dense it was and then seeing how many claims are made in rapid succession (laughs) that like basically don't seem to have like a lot of depth backing them. And then I I was just like, okay, screw this guy. Yeah. But I definitely, I definitely did go through a phase where I like wanted it to be basically, um, like, my religion like i wanted to believe that i'm going to ascend it has a religious quality
1: to it well and it was like
0: in my post-religious era when i discovered that it was like one of the first books i read in that phase like that was more technology ai focused and it definitely you know it liberated me a little bit from the need for legacy i think in in um for when you're religious there's this kind of like immortality piece that's just baked in oh you're going to go to heaven you're going to do whatever and then it was like oh wait i'm going to die and i'm not going to exist anymore and then i felt this burden of legacy and then when i realized like oh maybe i will transcend that it was kind of like oh maybe i don't have to worry about my legacy as much and that's kind of persisted in a good way i don't know <laughs> even if, as my as i've ebbed and flowed on my um kind of feelings about that book but i do think It's probably, he's probably kind of been validated a little bit in these, like, it's, you know, his stuff that he would chart all these, like, innovations and things, it's like, we're kind of probably right on schedule with what he had envisioned.
1: There's a good less wrong post that's kind of critiquing him twenty years later, and I think some of his predictions, like uh, transistor density, compute, are totally spot on. And then he has other things about like we'll be constantly video presencing with each other and like three D renderings versus for phone calls that is just totally off the mark. But I think he probably held up way better than we would have if we made those yeah. predictions twenty years ago.
0: One of my things I really liked that one of the things I really liked was like the nano. Like, bought like clouds or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, they're kind of doing, I mean, it's not at the scale, but like with the drone, like displays and like those crazy, like dragon drone things that are happening. I mean, it's like kind of exactly what he described.
1: Yeah. Uh, an argument I remember that's kind of related to that is like, three progressions of more and more perilous risk. So the first one is like biological risk. We'll get better and better at synthesizing dangerous biology. The cure for that in his view is like nanotechnology and the ability to like monitor at a biological level. But that has like the gray goo fear. And then, (laughs) you know, we wipe out all of existence, all of life on the planet. And then the cure for that is like true artificial intelligence that can like just truly understand everything that's happening at one time. And then if that goes wrong, there's sort of no cure left. Yeah.
0: My, one of my favorite quotes is from a John Stewart bit years ago and it was, uh, it was just like technology, the thing that almost solves the problem it just created. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, well let's, let's kick off by talking about, um, AI and what it has to say about the mind and consciousness. Maybe you guys can talk about your understanding of how AI works and why it is an interesting window into, um the human mind yeah i think there's different like degrees of
2: like interesting answers you could give to that so one i think is you know we have an artificial neural network right it it was sort of made with linear algebra in mind loosely inspired by a biological neuron and yeah when you look at sort of the activation space of like let's say a convnet doing some sort of like a basic image classification task actually kind of maps on to parts of our visual cortex like how that seems to be doing something like a convolution and so i think there's kind of this interesting thing where maybe there's sort of like convergent emergent ideas right and you can start with like an affine transformation and compose okay. them and stack them and stack them and let, end up with let
0: me back you up because i think you'd use like 10 different vocabulary oh, words that were like really challenging um so you're like, let me try and summarize and then you can kind of, so you it sounds like what you're saying is, and feel free to hop in here too, Jeff, dude, mm-hmm. it sounds like what you're saying is like, we were classifying images with an AI well, and, yeah, it, and le- it seems like it looks a little bit like the way our brains classify images or it's using an architecture that was patterned after the way the human brain works.
2: Well, I'm saying you can start with something very abstract and mathematical and uh, sort of do like essentially you have these connections between them. You have compositions of very simple functions. None of that seems to look like a brain. Yeah. And yet when you sort of do this optimization process, you end up with something that has these emergent properties like the same kind of properties you can probe in a brain. And so a lot of people would complain like, why do we even call them neural networks? Like they're nothing like a brain, the brain's so complicated, blah, 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 blah. We don't understand anything about the brain. But I have a feeling that um, artificial neural networks with backprop isn't the only way to end up with a brain like thinking piece of matter. Yeah. And so to me, like from that perspective, it's kind of like the the substrate independence thing that we talked about in a previous podcast. Like it doesn't seem so silly to sort of see the emergent intelligent things that neural networks are starting to do and say, hey, we could probably learn about the human brain. Yeah. from that emergence given that emergence seems to be independent of the actual sort of underpinning uh, mathematical concepts that are going on at the bottom
0: yeah and Jeff maybe you could uh, I don't know if you want to hop in on any of those topics but it would maybe specifically talk about training and backprop and how that stuff works
1: yeah um, I, I think the angle that that's just really compelling to me is thinking about neural networks as we, have a limited number of neurons in the computer and we're just feeding in more and more of reality into the same number of neurons and you're just trying to get it better and better at modeling reality. So at first it's just memorizing what you told it and remembering like that sentence, these words come after another. But as you feed in more and more data into these networks, it's not just memorizing the sentence, it's trying to guess at the function that produced the sentence, which is like the human human brain or like American culture. So you just keep pumping more and more data into a network, and just gets better and better at modeling reality writ large. And like right now, it's getting pretty good at how humans talk to each other. It's not necessarily super good at like physics, but that might come. And like maybe when we start to feed in different modalities, and maybe like to just tie the biological versus technological question together, like, I think there's this kind of feeling of like, the networks want to learn you just put in data and you actually don't have to do very much else like that's the whole thing we've discovered with scaling laws is you just keep feeding more and more data and they get better and better at understanding reality and maybe that's like the exact process that happened with us like you know all those hundreds of millions of years ago
2: it kind of reminds me like uh, Michael Graziano from Princeton you know he he sort of says well the need the sur- sort of the evolutionary benefit of like predicting what someone's going to do like socially like sort of leads to a theory of mind about that person or you have to get inside their head to understand are they going to attack me are they going to try to like mate with me and that's sort of it's kind of like maybe there is i think in the in like the chat gpt case like it has a theory of mind why because of the exact thing you said like if it's trying to predict the next word and this corpus is made from human data and someone's writing an Amazon review, you kind of need to know is this person mad? Does this person hate the product or they like the product? Because that very much influences the distribution of next words that they right. could say. And so I think it's kind of interesting that just sort of basic future prediction in some sense might, I mean, going back to like Carl Friston stuff, like, might be all you need for all of this apparatus to sort of form.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So, so the, the, the AI is basically designed for prediction, right? And you're saying, kind of saying, which I think I agree with that we're also designed for prediction. Like we're coming up, we're, we're generating content for the people around us. And so we're trying to sort of like sequence in a word that we think is going to be socially acceptable or creative or interesting or a great brand name or whatever, that's based on all of the understanding that we have of our culture. So uh, you said something that was really interesting. So like, let's say the training data for an AI was a single sentence, right? Like John likes to eat apples, right? And so you type in John likes to eat and there's one thing that it can produce, right? And so as that, the library gets deeper, denser and denser, the potential options there, especially if you say like, hey, I want a creative response to this sentence. It's going to sort of have a lot more tools to sort of like insert in there. So if you think, this is actually really helpful. Like, I think I've been thinking of, the ai components as neurons right but if you think think of that it's like the uh, i love the idea that you know airplanes don't look like birds like we there's some principles from how birds work that we like apply to how airplanes work but really they're completely different types of mechanisms even though they both fly right and so you have and that's just turns out it's way easier for us to power airplanes than it would be to power something like a bird and i think the same thing is true it's like so if you think about like instead of trying to fly we're just trying to predict and these are two models but they both actually are being quite successful in the same way.
2: Yeah, and actually, I think this is one of the reasons people are afraid. Like people like Hinton have said things like, well, maybe we've short circuited. So we know we have an existence proof for AGI through evolutionary processes. And maybe now with Backprop, we sort of have figured out another method that's much quicker, right? Than like having to sort of evolve over millions of years, intelligence. And that, that can be kind of scary if you extrapolate that, I guess. I don't know if I buy into the, that kind of doomerism, but it is interesting to think if there's sort of all of these ways to a single point, which is intelligence, and it can come from sort of any, any type of sort of basic prediction engine or very simple directives like next token prediction. It's kind of interesting to, to think about how um, non-special intelligence might be, right?
1: like it is the emergent property of just any kind of like neural complexity can start really simple and you just like keep feeding it more and more data and it's just going to get better at modeling reality. So I think that
0: this, this is might be a good segue into one of the maybe, so we were talking about, there's this paper, let's see, what was it called? It just came out. Um, consciousness and artificial intelligence insights from the science of consciousness. And it's this huge list of authors and they're talking about kind of relating AI to a bunch of different current theories of consciousness, like general workspace theory, the attention schema theory. And then we saw a, um, uh, from our, that we talked about this in the podcast previously, this, um, the, the blooms did a presentation about what a conscious AI would look like that is patterned after, um, uh general workspace theory and which is really interesting. So I think it's the there's this interest in like what are the motivations? Like how is that being um like connecting how we'd predict things, which it seems to be the we're predicting things based on emotions. Like we're having experiences or feelings about things. And then we're using that to feed in. And so I think there's a big concern that as you get into AI, you are we're creating the space for potentially emotive AI that could suffer and things like that.
2: Yeah, you want to jump into the the ethics
0: pit? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess what I'm saying is that there's the, um, there's the emotions piece like, so what is the, what is the mechanism through which an AI incentivizes its predictions? maybe that's where I'm trying to go with this, yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it's actually just next word like loss error, which I think is, we call this like perplexity. So it's like how, how its word error rate at predicting kind of like subsequent words. And the shocking discovery, which I think is like actually one of the most important things humanity's figured out in the last century is that you can very reliably predict how perplexity is going to get better and better by just feeding in more and more data and more and more compute, you can get more and more accurate at predicting next word. So that that's pretty mind-blowing. Like when we pu- published GPT-4, you can kind of see that like with, I think it was one one-thousandth of the compute that it would actually took to train GPT-4, we perfectly modeled like exactly what the perplexity was going to be in the final model. Very surprising that this is, it's this is like a law of science. Per- perplexity, what does that word mean? Perplexity is like... um how it's next word prediction it's just how good you are predicting the next word and like what your error rate is there so you can with from way way smaller compute runs make these really ambitious predictions and then the other thing that's just mind-blowing is perplexity correlates really well with a bunch of just general neural cognitive tests so like lsats you know like ap bio tests things like that so that's, that's kind of I, my take on kind of what's happening in the industry right now is the world has woken up to these scaling laws where if you looked five years ago and you asked people what they would do with GPUs, they'd have a bunch of different ideas. And now if you ask people what they do with GPUs, they just make bigger and bigger neural networks because we can just see this curve and so far it hasn't stopped. So we can just keep throwing more and more at it and like what's after LSAT. And, you know. Yeah, what is what is after LSAT? I mean, what's, wh- wh- where do these curves lead in your opinions, both of you guys? I, I, I mean, I time will tell, like, I think if you look at GPT-4, it's like as good as a high schooler at most forms of cognition and most uh, textual forms of cognition, it's probably way worse, like physiologically or navigating the real world. If you look at GPT-2, it's like a elementary school kid, maybe even a little bit less, like it would kind of form sentences, but they weren't totally coherent and you could push it around and it would be like very incoherent. So, you know, a couple past that and is it as good as an AI researcher and then, Instead of having, you know, 100 AI researchers or 1,000, you have a million and they're working constantly all the time. And that's sort of like a big change. Yeah. I mean,
2: you probably know uh, better than I do, but I think there, there's sort of a debate on are we going to run out of data at some point? <laughs> um, I've heard people, maybe Karpathy, saying like, no, we've, we've got too much data. Um, But there is a question in like, if you run out of data, you run out of data that's useful because not all data is sort of the same in terms of training, then you kind of, you either need to come up with an algorithm that's more sample efficient, or you need to start sort of generating data somehow, (laughs) which is sort of another- Snake eating its tail there, right? It's another blocker in some sense, because there's some some research out there that shows that that can kind of make things sort of- um, get into a very interesting like sort of outer distribution but it doesn't realize it and then like reality starts getting weird for it kind of thing. Um it's like saving a jpeg like a million times it's going to not look this so sounds, good. This sounds
0: sounds sort of like giving an AI drugs, you know. Like <laughs> your world world perceptions are start start skewing because you're, you know, you're in in this like um hot state or whatever. But
2: but I don't think um I don't know if this if if we run out of data and we need to simulate it i don't know if that is a um fundamental blocker i'm actually pretty optimistic about that if we have to suddenly come up with something more sample efficient um that i think might take longer but in either case you know if we trust carpathy like and i feel like this may actually be the case we we may have more data uh you know than we will ever need to develop like a an
0: intelligent ai like with Sky's the limit. So back to what you were saying. Then is the like the difference between GPT two and GPT four is literally just the amount of data, or is that there's is it training? Is there other stuff that's happening I behind mean, the scenes?
1: Not my area of expertise exactly. There's probably a lot more going on. But I think even before we discovered transformers and like the whole GPT paradigm, we were seeing these scaling laws observed, which is just like you throw more compute, you throw more data, and it just gets better and better at modeling stuff. Like uh, some of the original voice recognition software that was kind of like state of the art and like. 2012, 2014 was just people realizing you can just shove in as much data as you want. So we've been on this like exponential curve for something like 10 years. Mm. But I think in the last couple of years, it's really felt like the broader industry has woken up to it. And now there's just like way more money going into GPUs, way more research going into like algorithmic improvements. But the curve is is sort of the exponential the whole way.
2: I I actually I I don't know if this is like a shared opinion, but I actually when I see that the scaling laws are predictable, that gives me comfort in terms of like AI safety. There was a paper that came out a while ago, was, um, somewhat de- debated afterwards, but they were showing like the, all these, like these phase change sort of um, abilities that would be not there at all. And then suddenly it could do long multiplication. And that seemed really kind of spooky. That I did not like, because I don't <laughs> like the idea of like, Uh, We see where it's going, we see where it's going, we can predict it. Oh, wait, no. now there's a phase change and it can do something totally inexplicably uh, unpredictable. But that was sort of, I'm not going to say discredited, but people said, well, if you actually use different metrics that aren't so like zero or one, can it do it or can't it do it? You actually see that scaling laws come back and look smooth again. Yeah. And when you have smooth, predictable scaling laws, I think you can better predict your future like... Situation in like the future intelligence of these, just based on like the hardware that's coming out and like how much GPUs people are able to amass, that seems more tenable than someone accidentally like, ha- you know, uh, training an AI that undergoes a phase change and all of a sudden it's like godlike powers or something.
1: Right. Yeah, 100% agree with that. Um, and also just to, to pick some examples, like you know, if you looked at early GPTs, they couldn't do arithmetic. And then that's like an emergent property at some point, like GPT-4 is pretty good at arithmetic. It's less good if there's a different number of digits that you're working with from the two different numbers that you're adding or multiplying. Um, And you just, you don't know exactly what properties are gonna emerge, but it's pretty consistent that like as perplexity gets better, as you get better at that next token error prediction, you're just getting little minor tweaks and kind of the deficiencies of the previous generation.
0: Well it's pretty interesting to think about that relative to a human brain where very obviously we have kind of different neural modules that do that have been become specialized in different things, right? You don't use like your visual cortex to sort of do language that we have a, and it's kind of crazy that like you know, it sort of speaks to like the neuroplasticity of AI. I guess if it, you could just use this one thing, yeah, and it will like if like if our language was good enough, it would like you could basically see the world with it, right?
1: Yeah, um, you, you see this with things like LangChain, where people are basically creating separate variants of you know GPTs and they're just like one of them is really good at writing I don't know say uh, a blog post and then another one is really good at critiquing it and then another one is really good at like looking at it from a public relations point of view and maybe a few years ago, I would have thought of AGI as sort of like this omniscient, like God thing. But it, it really seems like the way it, it's at least emerging right now is more like submodules in the brain. Exactly. Like you get really specialized things that can kind of work in concert with each other. Yeah. Which is
0: sort of like the, the Bloom stuff that we'll, we'll maybe talk about. Here yeah. So second.
2: to bring that up, I actually thought that's where you're going, not the ethics thing when you brought up the Bloom thing. I, I was kind of. So so. Yeah. I would say there's, there's like two interesting things, like if we look at least two interesting things if we look at sort of human brain what's going on and what we can see there's like all this compartmentalization there's also feelings these seem to be limited or not at all present in like the large-scale ai systems and that compartmentalization going to sort of what you were saying jeff it does make me wonder well let's say even from like an economical point of view it makes sense to have smaller AIs that are more expert that collaborate than one giant one that costs like a lot of flops like, right. for next token prediction, right, yeah. right? Right. And we see this, like everybody's moving to mixture of experts and things like this. Mm-hmm. And I think that is part of it, but it's very interesting to see, that's a very different direction, people moving to mixture, mixture of experts to try to like get the cost down to what the Bloom model is which basically starts as a mixture of experts because they say, what is consciousness like in this and mixture of there? experts, meaning you just have subspecialties. You have all modules. these like subspecialties yeah. that are sort of competing for attention and the, the, sort of the conscious like uh, yeah. top. Right. That is sort of the bloom model. And I, I feel like uh, it's again, it's an interesting case of how you open up the discussion where it's like, here we have the blooms. They're like, um, you know, Turing award winning computer scientists from Carnegie Mellon they're looking at the brain being inspired by the brain and coming up with a system that these AI scientists are sort of coming up
0: with to just like make their systems cheaper to run. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. I mean, which is sort of, uh, you know, like evolution, right? Where it's like, ultimately you're developing all of this intense, um, intelligence just to like have sex with someone to have your children in the next generation. (laughs) Right. It's like this very, so, um, okay, well let's, uh, I want to, move over to i want to do a quick survey because i think i think we're probably all in agreement here but i'll be curious so um interestingly in this paper that i was just referencing uh they totally dismiss iit (laughs) there's also which is integrated information theory we've talked about it before on the podcast um and uh there's also a paper that just came out where a whole bunch of people i actually haven't read it yet but there's a whole bunch of people who are like IIT is pseudoscience and it's like a garbage theory of consciousness, but it gets a lot of play. A lot of people talk about it. Um, but one of their contentions is that, uh, software could never be conscious. Like they think that like, you know, an interconnected like sheet of neurons is conscious, but like an, an LLM is not conscious. So I wanted to sort of take the pulse of the crew here of like, can you have, so, so we might call this like substrate dependence or an embodiment and this was a hot topic at the conference as well can you have something that is not embodied in something like a human that is conscious can an ai which is which would basically
1: be like can an ai be conscious um it's honestly hard for me to imagine the answer to that question being no. Like at some point yeah. you're going to be able to imitate in software like the connections in the brain. You could do that with like, you know, an electron microscope scanning layer by layer by layer and just like building up like exactly the same pathways. Maybe there's something like intrinsic and in biological flesh that is you know that is where our consciousness comes from and it's sort of there and it's not in uh, transistors but it, it's really hard for me to imagine that being right.
2: Yeah. I kind of agree. Um, I think that, uh, if you look at, if you look at like people like Roger Penrose who are are really insisting that there's these quantum (laughs) microtubules and if you don't have microtubules, you're screwed, you know, that's a necessary component. Well then, then the, the substrate matters. Right. Yeah. But I think that they're like a holdout and most everybody else, uh, I think is, pretty much on the side that like no matter like what you stipulate those dominoes are going to fall eventually there's no fundamental block like the only fundamental block that anyone can think of is these quantum microtubules which are really controversial basically Mm. so i
0: to me when if you think of the you know there's people talk about the brain versus the body and it's like oh the um you know that's it that's a sensation in your body not your brain it's like what do you mean it's all one big fucking jumble all in of the neurons. simulation. Yeah, like exactly. It's, it's all part of the same system. So yeah. Um, eventually those should be simulatable as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, emotions at some level, like the long division one, I thought was an interesting example, like maybe emotions uh, or, or reportable emotions or whatever are one of those things that, you know, is just on that curve. And eventually it's like, Oh yeah, I'm feeling fear or I'm feeling anger um, as a, an emergent property. That's just, Aiding in the whole prediction process. Mm-hmm. So I wonder regarding feelings. I mean we, we
2: you know, I was sort of making a claim earlier that intelligence I think is sort of non specific and maybe a general thing if you just add up enough sort of compositional elements and data and some sort of rough optimization yeah. routine. But feelings might be a unique characteristic of an evolutionary process. Maybe. Like it seems uh, it, it seems like harder to come up with like a logical argument why feelings must exist in an intelligent yeah. system. That being said, I could see how you could maybe bootstrap feelings just from like a theory of mind. Like let's say, you know, let's say we just take as a given that GPT and there's, there's you know, research here that it has some theory of mind. I feel like from a theory of mind, if you if you truly can like get inside someone's head to be able to predict what they're thinking like you you might have have to have some concept of what does it feel like yeah. to be inside their head and at that point you're sort of booting up a whole uh, mess of your neurons to try mm-hmm. to simulate a feeling and once you simulate a feeling like maybe it feels like <laughs> something so that i can see like that argument but i kind of do wonder if it's sort of like a sort of a special component of of an evolutionary process yeah, it wouldn't be maybe existing in all sorts of ways you could arrive at intelligence.
0: Yeah. Well, I think feelings, you know, um, kind of no matter how you define consciousness, right? Like, uh, unlike AI where you're kind of building up all of this intelligence to be able to take action, like neurons and amoebas and life from the beginning was designed for action, right? It's taking action before it's conscious. So consciousness is like an outgrowth of like trying to become, you know, more active, more intelligent, whatever, but it already has figured out how to act, which is based on those emotions. Um, so, I mean, it kind of reminds me of the Yuval Harari thing from, um, Homo Deus where he talks about, um, just because we are both intelligent, we're the most intelligent and the most conscious doesn't mean that
1: artificial intelligence also needs to be the most conscious. Like these things could be sort of uncoupled. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think about feeling as kind of like the loss function for our learning process, where basically, like at a, a really primitive level, our bodies and maybe even amoebas are like clutching for good feelings, sex, food, and then running away from bad things like getting stabbed or, you know, <laughs> <laughs> getting tired or hungry. And then, relatively recent phenomenon getting stabbed, but yes. Oh, <laughs> well, you get teeth going to uh, even that's an a good amoeba. Point. Yeah, 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 there you go. Um, so that's, and then, and then kind of like where, natural selection has played in is kind of giving us like richer and richer versions of these loss functions where it's like, yep, food is good up until a point and then you're oversaturated and your cells are full and then food is bad and it's kind yeah. of just evolving and evolving and evolving. So we have at this point, this like incredibly complicated function that we're optimizing for that's like constantly shifting it's not like a yeah. single number that you're hitting but like once you get saturated in one way you're craving something else so and that that's really like a lot of what evolution has pushed our brains to do is be like more adaptive in what it's optimizing for
0: yeah and, but, and really trying to it's not about op, you know it's not about predicting words or whatever it's about predicting behavior what should i be doing now right but but i think there's still like the open question like the roomba has a
2: negative stimulus in that it it has a bump sensor. It hits Wait, a you wall.
0: Should, you should recap
2: our, the Roomba <laughs> argument. Well, yeah, let me just say, well, I always use the Roomba because it's like, you know, sometimes people use like a thermostat. It's like yes. the simplest possible, like senses of the environment and then acts. I think Roomba is more fun because it, it has basically more yeah. action in the environment. But I guess, I don't want to get into the Roomba thing actually, but what I want to say is it seems like you could have very rich positive and negative stimuli without any sort of valence to it or any like you could say you could sort of indexically uh understand all these different environmental stimuli but it doesn't seem like that must be coupled with uh pain or pleasure
1: yeah i i guess i want to maybe i can use that as a segue into some of the meditation stuff i'm interested in um because i think like oh yeah one of the one of the like core revelations in buddhism was sort of like you get yourself more and more concentrated. You're focusing on a feeling like it's getting subtler and subtler and subtler. And you can kind of just like see this tiny grabby motion that your brain is doing. It's called Tana, which is kind of either like grabbing onto a good feeling or like pushing away from a bad feeling. And you're just doing this in like micro, micro ways, like 10 to 20 times a second for all of your sensation. You can just like still your mind over and over again. And this is not something that I'm advanced enough to be able to do consistently. But if you just keep paying attention and keep being like, oh, that sensation, the grabbing doesn't feel good, doesn't feel good, and you just keep doing that, keep doing that, keep doing that, eventually your brain lets go completely, and you just stop grabbing, stop feeling the positive-negative valence, and that's like the moment of awakening. That's like the lights turn off without the grabbing, without the positive or negative sensation that you're going towards, and it's really, really subtle. It's like a microscopic, positive-negative feeling. There actually isn't anything at all. Yeah. So, kind of yeah. Thinking about that, like, I think I'm not convinced that you can experience things without a little bit of valence in them. Mm.
0: But, but yeah, so maybe, maybe an AI is just a really Zen. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the, the entity, AI has right? valence.
1: Like the AI has clearly like this was a better score or worse score. So it's yeah. kind of constantly optimizing. That said, I don't think AIs are conscious.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
2: I guess... Uh, we could compare, like you can differentiate between different colors, like indexically, and there seems to be, maybe there's a tiny amount of valence there, but it's not the same as like getting pinched versus getting for massaged. Sure. Yeah, right? for sure.
0: When, in fact, you know, you have cultures where people will specify colors as good or bad, and then a different culture where they'll specify it in, in an inverted
1: way. So. And, and the meditation claim is like, you can perceive the color red, but to perceive it, your brain is doing this, like, very small thing, trying to hold on to it and preserve it from, like, one instance of perception into the next instance of perception. Like, all of perception is doing this. You're just, like, yeah. grabbing the sensation that it, in, in its microscopic way is flashing in and out of existence constantly. But, like, we can't accept that. We can't, like, see them. They're impermanence. And you're, you're just grabbing, 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 grabbing. And if you stop grabbing, the red stops being there. Like, it just it just fades. Um, okay. So, we. I think... It sounds like we're
0: in agreement here that consciousness should be able to exist independent of substrate. Like an AI could be conscious. Yeah. We don't think that AI is currently
1: conscious or ten percent conscious. I, I, I love <laughs> <his> the idea <laughs> of ten percent conscious. Even a coherent. No, thing. no, it no, it wasn't it's like an expected value, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Which is which was uh, it was funny because um, Anil Seth gets up at the, who's another consciousness guy yeah, at the end of it. the. Um, the session and he's just like, cause he based this in part on credences, meaning like researchers in the field, like what percentage chance do they give? Like that's, yeah. that's part of the, the metric. And Anil Seth gets up and he's like, well, this is just gonna keep changing. Like you did, <laughs> we just keep, and this is a big point in uh, that singularity is near actually, that like, as these technologies become more and more prevalent, you just keep pushing the goalposts. Mm-hmm. So you never actually get to yeah. a place where people agree because they just keep like throwing that
1: off. It, this is making me wonder, the Harari thing that you said, like, do you think there are different degrees of consciousness? Like, is oh, it true that time. humans are more conscious than cats? And like, what makes that true?
0: I mean, this is um, Douglas Hofstadter's kind of contention. He, d- he did the Edel- G- Get a Lesher Bach book, and then he wrote another book called um, uh, I Am a Strange Loop about kind of like... And the whole book is him like shitting on mosquitoes and being like, mosquitoes are conscious, but not like us. <laughs> and just like talks about these like degrees. And even at the conference, you know, there were some of the more provocative statements, which, you know, not really provocative, but like in the audience, people were be like, well, oh, well, this is what I think would be like the line that they draw where they'll say like birds and apes are conscious but like cats are not, or like, you know, mammals are conscious, but like reptiles are not, or these. And so everyone kind of has their line and their definition of like where that exists. But within that, I think is baked the idea that like, you know, animals are conscious to some degree, right? Seems right.
1: Yeah, like it, there's, it's very tough, I think. To conscious work, as in like they're experiencing a qualia.
0: Well, yeah, so this is kind of like what, how you define. It. So I thought that the guy Nicholas Humphrey had one of my favorite sessions about this and he's like talking about blind sight and basically trying to show, you know, blind sight. So basically you can, um, your optic nerve, like the connection between your eyes and your mammalian brain, which is kind of the storyteller. That's, that's very rich, um, is, uh, severed. Mm -hmm. So if I asked you, do you see anything you would report being blind? but I could like throw something at you and you, you could catch, catch it. it. Yeah. There's, there's
2: a secondary, like much, much older
0: evolutionarily speaking yeah.
2: pathway that we're not conscious. of. Right. And but, so this is how
0: frogs, like they will, like, if you, if you hold an iPhone in front of a frog with like flies on it, it will just like just dart hit at them. It. Right. And yeah. that's, that's very much tied to this older part of the brain. Yeah. So it's like you have, and so his, his point is basically that like these are two very distinct ways of existing and that like that you know, ape brain would be conscious. Whereas the, the, um, that's right. The frog brain would not. Yeah.
1: Well, but the frog might still have other things that are conscious in its brain. Like I'm afraid of this predator or whatever. I, the example that's coming to me is like your heartbeat. Most of the time you're not conscious of it, but if you exercise and you go for a run, when you finish it, it like has bubbled up into your conscious experience. So there's sort of like this envelope of your sensorium where some parts of it are part of consciousness and some parts of it are just hidden from you. And you can like, Play with that and you can yeah so I, I
2: think and it speaks to so an opinion i have that might be like kind of kind of uh controversial which is I, I think consciousness is sort of um there's a requirement that you need to be able to craft a story about it so if the frog was afraid of the predator it needs to be able to tell that to itself as a story of, of itself and if it's unable to do that i don't think
1: what does a story mean here yeah so <laughs> I,
2: I think that there. And that, let's let's loop this back to AI. I think when you train an LLM, um, if it has no ability to sort of peer into like its own inner workings to craft a story about why it's predicting the next token, I think it's sort of maybe minimally or non-conscious. I think people who are actually looking at explainable AI—this is a very hot take, by the way—but mm-hmm. people who are looking at like explainable AI. And coming up with basically like, you know, little like sister networks that sit on top of a large LLM to try to explain To give it a story of why it's saying what it's saying Mm -hmm. I think that might be sort of our like oopsie-daisy
1: We made it conscious
2: in yeah, exactly interesting And I think one of the reasons I think this is because of like I've been heavily influenced by that Graziano guy Who's sort of he's looking at places in the brain that basically it's like the attention schema theory So you have attention like the frog can attend to the predator attend to the fly But that's not actually like the bit that we would like think of as consciousness it's actually the bit that monitors the attention Mm -hmm. right and so it's like the dashboard that says oh i'm going to choose to ignore this fly over here that would be a tasty meal because there's something that's about to eat me yeah and that monitoring is what we sort of associate with our consciousness and it's the monitoring of your heartbeat right and you can choose you can sort of choose where your attention is but then sort of the uh information about how you're choosing that story is actually what we i think typically associate with consciousness if that makes sense
0: and to to push on this in a provocative way i haven't really thought of this before but like the um if you think about that narrative There are so many ways in which our narrative that we have about ourselves is fucked, right? Like we have like really broken, there's a, one of my favorite books is called the enigma of reason. And it talks about how like rationality and language and all this stuff is actually designed for socially convenient, um, stories about ourselves. We go to therapy to kind of like unbundle these stories we've been telling. So it's quite possible that, you know, as we do create a conscious AI, it sees us as quite unconscious because we're behaving, we're creating these narratives. We're doing all this prediction about our own behavior that is just not accurate because Mm -hmm. we actually can't monitor our internal systems. We don't have that good a sense of our feelings and we're super biased about certain things. Um, So yeah, I think, I think that that's, there's, there's the story that confabulation about what we do is a big part of the consciousness. And yet ours is like, we think we're doing great and we are relative to a lot of things, but it's right. also quite imperfect
2: And I think the the confabulate thing comes from just like math and logic, right? So if you imagine like what is the actual story of why chat says that next word? Well, it's billions of numbers <laughs> That's the actual story. So any explainable ai Is just going to be a story about those numbers. It can't encapsulate every single detail, yeah. right? There's no way that you could sort of um, Abstract away anything if it's like non compressible. So, like, it's going to leave out details that hopefully don't matter as much, and it therefore can get it wrong. This is why our confabulations, our own narratives are wrong, because what's really going on is like an intense amount of data of electrical activity up there. Yeah. And so, basically, to have a foothold on a sort of any sort of explainable aspect of your own inner workings, you're basically having a less complex sort uh, of like you're yeah. flattening it. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, I think. This is also why consciousness feels spooky, because there's a limit to how many times you can sort of loop back and have a complex, uh, like, you know, a complex story about your own consciousness and a complex story about that complex story. Mm -hmm. Like there's just a limit to that recursion because you're losing details each time. Mm -hmm. And so at the pinpoint, it just seems very spooky. This is why quality, I think, is so convincing to people, because there's not another layer where we can like loop back on it. It's sort of the top it's the top piece of consciousness Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but again these are all sort of like
0: my own personal takes yeah i mean this is so this is where like ben and i kind of i feel like we (laughs) loop on these things
1: a lot so i'd be interested in your take on kind of this this uh these thoughts um i it's striking me that like what what we're defining as consciousness is not clear and we probably have like like subtly different (laughs) definitions like the way that i was entering this was like consciousness all it is is the qualia. It's the feeling of like this yeah. tea, this matcha looks green. And that's the only thing, the story that I can layer on top of it. Then the part of that that's conscious is like the words that are occurring in my head where I'm like, you know, like there's another variant of qualia that is like thought. Um, there's also, you know, sight, sound, touch. But all the consciousness is, is the feeling of like I have experienced something. And then when I look at like my body, a lot is happening that my body is aware of that my brain is aware of yeah but that is not conscious that doesn't cross the threshold until like i actually like feel a qualia related to that sensation so like heartbeat is one of them like the inside of my stomach is like only really perceptible if i feel really sick or i feel really hungry or really full most of the time it's just like not part of my consciousness um and then the question for me is like why are things like moving across this threshold yeah. from like unconscious to conscious and is it? It's not clear to me that the mosquito doesn't have the same kind of shtick going on, of like a bunch of its body yeah. is unconscious and then a little bit is bubbling into the conscious qualia space at every moment. Oh
0: no, I I completely agree, and I think that um, the um, uh, one book I really like in this space, the Meme Machines, Susan Blackmore. So you know, if you've read The Selfish Gene, he has the whole chapter on memes. Yeah. So she sort of like takes that to the next level and sort of saying like, you know, humans are meme generators. Our brains are designed for this. And one of the things she talks about is like the you know having thoughts and language or whatever is like valuable probably
1: very occasionally do you think it's part of consciousness like having thoughts or is that like an unrelated part of our like tech tree i think it is a
0: um so i
1: think it's a way of
0: essentially preserving like making more things conscious right it's like language and our narrative about ourselves and the the social narrative is forcing us to pull more and more. Like you think about meditation, you're noticing your body more. Yeah. And then one of the things that happens is you start to explain that and describe it and talk about it. And then that becomes, or you think about, you know, um, they, they always talk about cultures and the development of color, that like you didn't actually see this color until you had a word for it. yeah. Or you didn't actually feel that emotion in that way until you had a word for it. So it becomes this way of like pulling more data forward. And in Me Machine, she talks about like, essentially, in words and memes and ideas becoming their own kind of platform and their own kind of cancer on how our brains work, mm-hmm. we're having way more thoughts than we need to have mm-hmm. to like function. Right. And so it's like those thoughts become kind of containers for like pulling more and more and more data from uh, our kind of like uh, valence. And then it's know, kind of stem. importantly,
1: like the thoughts are actually like changing what we perceive. So like exactly. You're seeing more colors. Exactly. Because you have those words. Yeah.
2: I think you can also, I think in, in general, yeah, language is very consciousness expanding, but I think it can also be limiting in that it it discretizes you yeah, right mm. into the um meanings of these words um yeah i wanted to say something and that and I was kind of it's what we're we talking about right before okay so so your comments on qualia i think there's sort of a nuanced distinction if you accept qualia as sort of the bedrock uh of like basically everything you're leaving the door open for the hard problem for chalmers to step in and talk about zombies and for basically the whole right. uh, premise of everything to be unanswerable. I think if you think, well, maybe qualia isn't bedrock. It seems fundamental. I think therefore I am. I feel therefore I am or whatever. But maybe maybe that's just an opinion I have, just like any other opinion. <laughs> and maybe if I don't put qualia as sort of the fundamental thing at the very bottom, and I leave room, wiggle room for it to actually be an emergent thing that just feels like bedrock, then I think the hard problem becomes less hard. Mm. Uh, are you familiar with the, the hard problem? Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's kind of why I like sort of, I push against this. I don't go to the full, like I'm an illusionist. We're not actually conscious, like, you know, kind of thing. But I do think sort of like taking qualia off. It's like pedestal of like this sort of sacred thing at the very bottom of a fundamental experience, I think is, is main, mainly the, the, best way to get rid of the hard problem.
0: Wait, so then you would say what is that the bo- what is the what is the bottom then in that definition?
2: I think the bottom is uh, compute. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, compute and simulation basically. And well, I, I think mean prediction, I guess, right? Prediction. Yeah. yeah. And uh I you know, self-perpetuating models and
0: So qualia being a way of informing the predictive model to sort of get better outcomes.
2: Yeah, I mean like uh, so Imagine this. Imagine there is qualia, and this is bedrock experience, and it not only leaves the door open for the hard problem, but it leaves the door open for things like panpsychism and stuff, Mm -hmm. which is, these are valid theories, but I find them distasteful. (laughs) I like the more engineering mechanistic descriptions, which would point to qualia being almost like a, a bit of a delusion we have. Like, oh my god, there's this spooky thing, and it's totally unexplainable. What is it like to be a bat? You know, I could never imagine echolocation. that I can never imagine a qualia different than, like, or, you know, telling a blind person what colors are, you know, like this, yeah. these sort of like uh, divides that seem unconquerable. And I think that is sort of applying a sort of a pre existing mystical quality to qualia, such that it couldn't be defined in terms of neural processes, right? It makes it really hard, yeah. especially talking to someone who is very, Convinced that qualia is the bedrock thing upon which everything else must be based logically about your yeah. existence.
1: It, I, I guess I want to be open to like neural processes. Don't explain what consciousness is like the hard problem of consciousness. Like we're not using the right tool to explain that. And maybe like we'll build the right AI system and it will convince us that it's conscious or we'll yeah. like see like a loop in there and be like, Oh, that's what the fuck is going on. But I don't want to say like, because like the neural toolkit doesn't, uh, doesn't figure out the hard problem of consciousness. I agree with you. It feels kind of intractable with that toolkit. That doesn't necessarily, um, mean that like, we have to reject the quality of bedrock idea.
0: Um, all right, well, we have a few minutes left and I have like another, like it's sort of side, well, it's not a tangent, but it kind of like, it's the the opposite side of this coin, right. Which I love talking about, which is we talking about artificial intelligence. Right. We're talking about consciousness. Is it artificial intelligence consciousness? What about artificial consciousness? Hmm. So we're talking about some specific ways of like basic, like the Bloom stuff is really trying to increase intelligence or the, what did you call it? The, where they have the different entities, that
2: like mixture of experts, mixture exact
0: experts, right. As a way of just making something more intelligent, which is, which is totally fair. But what if, what if like a, what about creating something that is conscious as, as the goal? Like just sort of using valence using emotions, like does that feel possible, resonant interesting dangerous
2: yeah let's ju- let's dive into the ethics.
0: I think that it's dangerous ethically mm-hmm. to um
2: on purpose or accidentally create a conscious artificial artificially conscious entity
0: like 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 a baby, for example, <laughs> yes <laughs> I, <laughs> didn't choose na- to, I didn't choose to be entity. born
2: i mean I think and I think the reason is we have this intuition that consciousness uh prescribes some sort of like uh, moral status right yeah i mean this is the whole killing of animals thing like is it okay to kill a frog like is it okay to kill uh a dog you know this sort of things like it's these decisions are sort of in part made well how cute it is but also like how conscious we think it is how much, yeah, much it's suffering pass- it's suffering it's exactly feel. yeah and if consciousness Maybe there's an artificial consciousness that does not have capacity for suffering. I'm open to that idea, but I think there there is this idea in my mind that if you make a minimally artificial conscious entity that has capacity for suffering, now you can do it sort of at scale mm-hmm. as, as the AI engineers would say, <laughs> and that seems suffering
0: re- suffering is a service
1: Yes. <laughs> I guess I want to be like, you also have joy as a service too. Like you could have yeah, exactly. you know, trillions. Well, of I'm just thinking, you know, beings. like
0: children who like very few children are going to be like, Oh, I wish I was never born. Right. Like if you could make this conscious AI entity and it reports being, being happy, happy about exist. its, its existence in spite of its suffering, like, you know, I mean, I also
2: just for what it's worth. Yeah. Maybe, maybe my um, opinions here are a little in but like, I think, you you could You could potentially I don't think suffering and pleasure are sort of like the things we should track I'm not, I sort of reject utilitarianism not as a whole but like most of it Because I think meaning for example is more important like you could have someone that suffers yeah. their whole life But if they feel like their life has meaning, I think ultimately that's more
0: valuable. Yeah, this is a Viktor Frankl kind of yeah. philosophy. yeah, right? and yeah. so
2: i'm I kind of thing like suffering at scale does seem horrifying but yeah, maybe But all of these things are sort of wrapped in consciousness. I think once you have a conscious entity, there is sort of a a status for meaning as well, right? Instead, and
1: there's moral implication in a way that
2: maybe is
0: less true before. I, I do think though, that this is, you know, we like in attributing special status to these things, they also, we also attribute special value. Like we have conversations with, with humans. We like invest in those relationships. We celebrate their birthdays, right? Like we really value those things thus
1: like because could, it's conscious
0: yeah yeah right and so i think in a similar way we could really value like in a her like the movie yeah. kind of model really value a conscious ai that does I, have it's like a digi pet that's not
1: totally clear to me that she's conscious there versus like no no i told mm.
0: i agree right but like in trying to sort of make something that feels more like that
1: mm-hmm. you know
0: like we're we're entering this like loneliness epidemic right in our in our society um uh i was just seeing this thing as like one in seven males have no friends yeah which is insane right yeah and um and so it's like maybe this is a thing that we actually need is sort of um investing in some of this kind of conscious ai where they're leveraging these things so you know and I, i don't know if those those two things connect exactly but it does seem interesting to me to think about a you know, we've been working on this, like, intelligence curve. Well, what does the consciousness curve look like? And could you kind of have hello world versions of consciousness that is, you know, I'm having emotions, I'm having, you know, motivations. Um, I'm not necessarily the smartest, you know, but I am kind of, like, motivated in a way that looks more like human consciousness.
1: Yeah. And it's not clear to me if we're doing that right now or not. Like, if we're on the consciousness curve.
0: I think most of the conversation feels like, is our emotions going to be an accident that spills out of intelligence, which th- that's the argument. Right. But I think there's also, this is like, should you be creating it? Can you, could you just try and create these emotions mm-hmm. as their, as their own, you know, thing?
2: I think that's really interesting. It reminds me like people have been experimenting, you know, sending like cute little robots to old folks homes. Yeah. And there's really good, um, outcomes there. Yeah. And I think to myself, yeah, that's just a toy though. Like why is, why is that offering some real degree of companionship? And it, well, number one, it's interesting that that's, that's occurring. But number two, I, if I put myself in those shoes and then I think, oh, that little robot dog is conscious. Now I'm really invested. Yeah. Right. Now I have a real companion. Right. And so I think that would really, yeah to a large part potentially solve a lot of like these
1: sort of loneliness why i guess i'm wondering there is that like is that like rational that we ascribe so much value to consciousness like if it's <laughs> the perfect zombie robot dog and it behaves exactly the same way like why do i i i, I share the intuition with you that well, i wouldn't well, care about
2: it so much. what's interesting is like uh you know a lot of our friends like when chat was released uh you know some of some people I talked to had like real conversations. I, I didn't sort of interact with it this way. And
0: I know a lot of people who um give positive reinforcement. They'll be like, that's a really great answer. Thank you so much. Yeah. Or they right. like, yeah. hey, I have a, I know this is, in, you know, this is like a difficult question, but I really want to know. You know, they, they sort of like have this veneer of politeness. Uh, well,
2: I'm polite to it only because I think it biases its distributional output to be better. <laughs>
1: Just like jeff giving me like Westworld vibes of like the way that we treat the robots actually like grows or damages our own souls so we what's should be the, nice
0: what's the the thought experiment the the most dangerous that rocco's basilisk or something no oh yeah that's like ai yeah. is gonna Do you know about this yeah i yes.
2: don't find it very compelling i don't find it compelling <laughs> at
0: all i think it's so funny i fu-
2: what i find most compelling is that people find it compelling that's interesting yeah, to yeah, me. yeah. yeah 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 it's kind of like also like, I think Chalmers talks about the, um, the meta problem, which is why do people find the hard
0: problems so fun to talk about? Or <laughs> <Yeah. whatever. laughs> I did not, it's a I great didn't question. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I think we're, we're coming up on time. Um, any, I don't know, closing thoughts, anything else you guys want to cover or want to talk about? I thought we covered a lot of interesting ground.
2: Yeah. I thought this was super fun. I am actually also more interested in sort of the meta. Aspects. I mean, like it also. Makes- I feel
0: like you're you you like uh, you've like got a push pull relation. You're like in, interested, but like in well, a, no, I'm super
2: interested. But I also like it makes me wonder, like in the future, will like AIs be meditating? <laughs>
1: yeah, enlightened AI. That's, maybe that's the goal. <laughs>
0: I, I bet we could get a hundred million dollars in funding for that right now. Just like
1: teach the AI to forget about its next word error over and over until it's awakened.
0: Yeah. But then it's going to do a bad job of predicting, you know,
1: Yeah, but it'll be really nice, like, kind. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: Cool. Well, thanks for joining us. This was uh, for ConCon, Consciousness Conversations. You can find us um, on the web at concon.show and wherever you like to watch podcasts. Also, if you're listening to this somewhere and you want to leave us us comments, uh, go on, uh, find us on YouTube. Uh, That's kind of the best place to interact with us. Yep. sweet. This was fun. Cool. All right, thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks.